Please pray with me. Father, this morning I pray that our hearts would be open to see a glimpse of the glory of what has occurred in your Son. And I pray that we would hear his call to us. I pray that we would be reassured of your presence. Amen. When I was in high school, I was a camp counselor, and I remembered being shocked to find out that there was a girl in my group named Jezebel. I was stunned. Didn't her parents know that Jezebel was a wicked character in the Bible? The reality is, is that there is a great deal of biblical ignorance in our time. Basic references that people would have taken for granted 50 or 100 years ago go right over people's heads. We just don't remember the stories. The burning bush, though, that's not one of those that we forget. My guess is if you mention the burning bush, most people could call to mind something of this incident. But even though we remember it, I think we still miss a great deal of its significance. For instance, this is a moment where we see the presence of God in the midst of fire, and because he is there, holy ground is all around him, and he is speaking from this holy ground. This paves the way for an understanding of the temple, where God's presence is there in smoke and fire, and holiness is demanded to those who enter. Because God is there, and he speaks from this place. You hold those two poles together, and suddenly Pentecost snaps into focus. God present in fire, but rather than a bush or a temple, his people themselves have become the temple, the presence. This gathering, covered in the holiness of God, because this is where he speaks. Connecting these things illumines all of them. My point is there is much here to think about, even if we are familiar with the story already. The burning bush is a perfect example of what theologians call a theophany call. This is the point where my wife would say, why in the world did you use a word that people don't know? But hang on, it's not that hard. A theophany is simply a visible appearance of God a place when he shows up and makes himself known and identifies himself. So a theophany call is when God shows up and reveals himself visibly to people and then calls them to a particular task. Moses sees God who identifies himself, and then God issues a call on his life. Go to Egypt as my representative and bring freedom to those who are enslaved. This particular theophany call foreshadows another that's going to happen at this exact same location because Moses brings the Jews to this very mountain. And at that place, we read in Exodus 19 that on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. You hear the resonance with the burning bush? The Lord descending in this place in fire and revealing himself to the people. And then God said to them, I am the Lord your God. A theophany 
He reveals himself and identifies himself. And then he issues a call. You shall have no other gods before me. He calls them to holiness, to worship, to follow him. There's other theophany calls scattered throughout the Old Testament. One of the most profound that you probably remember is in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah sees the Lord seated on the throne and the train of his robe is filling the very temple with glory and the foundations of the temple are shaking and it's filled with smoke and fire. And there are these flaming beings flying, circling around, crying out, holy, 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 a theophany. Isaiah's response is, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a person of unclean lips, and I live amongst a pe people of unclean lips. And one of these flaming creatures, the seraphim, takes a coal from the altar and flies towards Isaiah and sears his mouth and says, your guilt is atoned for. Your sin is taken away. And then here comes the call. God says, who will go? Whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, send me. A theophany followed by a call. There's others. Elijah receives one. Ezekiel receives one. There's a variety of them. And they're, they have different elements. But the pattern is basically the same. God reveals himself visibly. And strangely, it's usually in fire. He identifies himself if needed. And then he calls his people his messenger to a particular task. This pattern actually illuminates three instances that happen right around the time of Jesus' ascension. One before, one during, and one right after the ascension. Right before the ascension, Matthew 28, Jesus is standing on a mountain, and the disciples see him and worship. It's a theophany. You hear the resonance of Sinai? They climb the mountain towards him the way that Moses climbed the mountain towards God. And there he issues a call. Go into all the nations. Make disciples. Baptizing them. Teaching them everything that I've commanded you. A theophany call right before the ascension. And then at the ascension itself, the Lord Jesus rising into the clouds rising into the clouds, but declaring to them, I mean, that's a theophany of theophanies, but declaring to them at that moment, you will be my witnesses, a theophany coupled by a call. And then right after the ascension, at Pentecost, at this point when we see these patterns over and over, we should be not surprised when how does the Lord show up? Fire in the midst of his people, a theophany on their very heads and bodies, and then the call to go out and proclaim the resurrection of the Lord, a theophany call. When all these things are held together, we realize that although Paul might have been surprised that God chose him, and Paul was certainly surprised that the Lord Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the risen Son of God, as someone who knew all these stories, he would not have been surprised at all when the form of his conversion was a theophany call. A blinding light in the sky, brighter than the brightest fire, throwing him to the ground, blinding him, followed by an identification. Who are you? He sounds like Moses. Who am I speaking to? I am the Lord Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And then the call. Go to my disciple Ananias. He will baptize you. 
And then the further call that's given through the lips of Ananias, you will carry the name of the Lord Jesus to Gentiles, to kings, to governors, and even to the children of Israel. A theophany call. There's other elements in these stories that are oftentimes present. It's pretty normal in the moment for the person who's receiving this to quake in their unworthiness and fear. Moses said when he saw God, he said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Who am I? Aware of his unworthiness. Isaiah's response was very simply, woe is me. These weren't oftentimes pleasant experiences. Another element that's frequently present is very simply God's promise of his presence. God's promise of his power. Look at what he says to Moses in verse 12. I will be with you. God promises in these moments presence. He promises power at the ascension. Jesus saying, wait until you are clothed with power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. These elements oftentimes accompany that. Those who were called like this in the Old Testament were called to do a sort of specific set of things. Moses was called to lead people from bondage. He was called to teach the ways of God to the children of Israel. He was called to establish the nation, effectively to be its king. The Jews at Sinai, when they received theirs as a nation, were called to devote themselves to God in the way that they lived and in the way that they worshipped, to devote themselves to God so that the nations around them would understand who God was. Elijah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, all these prophets who received these theophany calls, they were called to proclaim the word of God, to proclaim his message, and to proclaim it in a way that separated people by their very response. Those who heard them and responded were brought to restoration and healing. And those who rejected them were brought to judgment. The very proclamation that they were called to make was a winnowing fork separating those who would follow from those who wouldn't. The things that they were called to do were clear and fairly few in number. But every one of those things that they were called to do in these moments foreshadowed the Lord Jesus. They were types, living pictures, living examples of the Lord Jesus. And I don't want to get bogged down here. This is the place where I want to descend into a great deal of theology. I don't want to get bogged down, but if this is confusing, just ask me later. The point is, is that Jesus was truly the called one. He was the sent one. Every one of these theophany calls foreshadowed him, and every ministry that was given in one of these theophany calls foreshadowed him. He was the one who was actually sent by God to do these things. He was the one called. He was called to free people from bondage like Moses. He was called to live in worship faithfully the way the Israelites were supposed to. He was called to proclaim the ways of God, to teach the law of God like Moses or the prophets. He was called to proclaim the kingdom like the prophets. And even in his proclamation, we see the same thing that occurred with the prophets. That for those who received it, there was healing and restoration and reconciliation. But for those who rejected it, the very message itself brought judgment. He was the true winnowing fork, the net that separated the good fish from the bad fish. He was what all of them were, but more so, but greater. 
the truly called and truly sent one. All of their ministries only hinted of him and pointed toward him. That he is the truly called and sent one explains why he received these sorts of calls from the Father. Think with me. At his baptism, the heavens split open. The spirit descends like a dove. This is a theophany. And the declaration of identification, God saying, this is my beloved son. And then what follows? The call. But this call to go into the wilderness, to battle with the devil on his own turf, so that the children of Israel would be set free from his powers. Or at his transfiguration, there's hints of Sinai all over this. On the peak of a mountain, shining in glory, the Father overshadowing him in a cloud of fire and glory. This is a theophany call. The identification again, this is my beloved son. Obey him. And then the call that follows, he walks down the mountain just like Moses and promptly sets someone free. But this time, the captor is not Pharaoh. It is the devil himself who's captured a little boy. And then the further call, Jesus immediately at that point sets his face for the cross and goes to Jerusalem. A theophany call. The intriguing thing about these theophanies that Jesus receives is at the moment when the identification occurs, the father turns and identifies the son. This is the son, the beloved, the one that I'm pleased in. Obey him. There's a shift in the pattern. He is the truly called one. In fact, we learn that he was called and sent from before the foundation of the world. From before the very first sin, the Lord Jesus was called. Will you take this ministry? Will you redeem? Called to break bondage, to set the enslaved free. The true king, something that only Moses could hint at. Called to reveal God to the world. The true prophet, something that Elijah and Isaiah and Ezekiel could only hint at. Called to reconcile the world to God, the true priest. He received these theophany calls because he was the truly called and sent one. And indeed, he was the only one worthy to receive them. The only one who actually obeyed them fully. But the thing that's strange here is that he, even though he is the truly called and sent one, is also God himself. And because he is God himself, the pattern gets shifted. The Father's identification is of him rather than of himself. And because he is God himself, after the resurrection, he becomes the subject of these theophany calls. The one revealing himself, Matthew 28, standing on the mountain, being worshipped by his disciples, claiming all authority and issuing the call. The one throwing Paul to the ground, blinding him, saying, I am the Lord Jesus, in issuing the call on his life. Jesus stands at the overlap of this age. His ministry was foreshadowed by those like Moses to whom God revealed himself. His ministry was foreshadowed by those to whom God had given these ministries of proclamation, of freedom, of reconciliation. 
Jesus' ministry was foreshadowed by those things, but he stands at the overlap of the ages, and everything that occurred before was paving the way for him. In other words, his ministry is the true ministry, the ministry that delivers people from bondage, sin, bondage to sin, bondage to death, bondage to the devil. His ministry is the ministry that actually brings healing and restoration, reconciliation to God. And his ministry is the ministry that actually proclaims the ways and the character of God. He stands at the overlap of the ages. He is both the sent one, the called one, but also the God himself doing the sending, revealing himself in theophanies to the church and calling the church into his mission and his ministry. You see, this is where we stand. We stand on the other side of this overlap of the ages. We stand grafted into the very body of Christ, made a part of him, made a part of who he is. This means that his ministry is now our ministry. We cannot deny it without denying our very identity. We are members of the body of Christ, and his ministry is now ours because we have been grafted into him. For most of us, it's unlikely that this will look as flashy as Moses or Elijah or Paul. For most of us, it is unlikely that this ministry will involve a theophany, God descending in fire in our house. We might want that, but I would caution you against it. After all, those theophanies had a way of disrupting the lives of people in fairly dramatic ways. For most of us, this being called into the ministry of Christ will be far more ordinary, much more like the Jews at Sinai than Moses himself much more like an average man or woman in Philippi than Paul himself. For most of us, this stepping into what we have been given, the ministry of Christ because we are a part of the body of Christ, for most of us, this will be far more ordinary. We'll be simply acting in our daily life and work like God's kingdom actually is the most important thing. Living as if his kingdom does carry more weight than the kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms of money and politics and pleasure. It will be simply caring about and obeying Jesus, even when it doesn't make perfect sense, letting our lives be full of prayer and worship and thanksgiving in the most ordinary ways. It will look simply like being willing to forgive others who have offended us, treating them with the character of Jesus, being hospitable to strangers, opening our doors to people who are different, opening our wallets to people who are in need. My point is that it is unlikely to be flashy. There might be a Paul or Elijah called out of this congregation, but those are the rare moments. And like I said, fairly disruptive. Don't seek one of those theophany calls unless you truly want to go down that path. For most of us, this will be ordinary. How we treat others. Whether or not we give when someone is struggling near us. 
Whether or not our time is not viewed as our time, but instead is viewed very simply as the Lord's time to do with that which he desires. For most of us, this will be as ordinary as being bold enough to say to a friend, I have hope because of what Jesus has done for us. No flashy, profound gift of evangelism, no standing on a box on a street corner with a megaphone, just simply being honest with a neighbor and saying, God's promises sustain me in darkness. It will be ordinary and simple for most of us. It will likely be ordinary, but we need to hear very clearly that ordinary work done in Jesus' name is how Jesus does the vast majority of his work on earth. This is important because we look at the Moses or the Paul or the Elijah and say, why can't I have that experience? And again, let me caution you, that experience usually comes with a great deal of life change. Jeremiah crying out, I wish I could stop being a prophet, but your word is like fire in my bones and I can't stop. He didn't enjoy the process. Most of the work that Jesus does is the ordinary work his body does when it's done in his name, done with his love, done with his character laced over us. He is working to reconcile the world to himself. And he does it through your daily lives. Everything that you do has significance in the kingdom of God. Even the ordinary. The reality is, is that the primary thing that Jesus calls us to, very simply, is to be a witness to him. This is what he said to the apostles at the ascension. It's what happened at Pentecost. Be a witness to him. We need to remember here, again, the Lord Jesus is the called one. He is the sent one. His ministry is the true ministry. It is not our job, in other words, to do what only he can do. But what he does is he says, go be a witness to who I am. Go be a witness to me. We are his witnesses, his ambassadors. We witness to him in the lives of our neighbors very simply by prioritizing him more than we do the things of this earth. If what our neighbors see is that we love the exact same things they do in the exact same proportion, we are not witnessing to the Lord Jesus. Our witness is the witness of saying the Lord is the Lord in my life. And that means ruling my time, my finances, my pleasures, and all of the above. We witness to him by the way that we worship. This very gathering is a testimony to the world that the Lord is the Lord. This is witness to him. We witness to him in our prayer life. The fact that we will bend the knee before we strive by our own efforts to fix every problem in this world. We witness in the way that we live by the way that we speak to our neighbors, by our kindness, our hospitality, our generosity. And when the opportunity is given, we witness by, ordinarily, by our ordinary answer to people who say, why are you still hopeful? Proclaiming to them, because God has promised that he would watch over me, because Jesus is close, because he is alive. It's our ordinary lives rightly oriented toward the presence of Jesus Christ that actually become this witness, this ministry towards others. 
This is what his body is called to. We have been given this ministry because we have been grafted into him. I want to close with a very simple thought. There may be many of you who actually hear this and go, but who am I? I'm not worthy of this. You may say, but who am I? I'm not worthy of this because you look at your own life and you say, you see this sin? This thing? How can I witness to Jesus when I bear this black mark in my soul? To you, I would say what was said to Isaiah. Your sin has been atoned for. Your guilt has been taken away. Because of what the Lord Jesus does, has done, there is no hindrance of guilt if you receive him. It's cleansed, taken from you, washed away. There may be others who say, but who am I? I can barely keep my head above water running my own life with my own family. I don't have time or energy to think about these sort of things. To you, I would say what was said to Moses. God says very simply, I will be with you. I will be with you. I will be with you. And there may be others who say, but who am I? I have no ability. Why doesn't God pick somebody a little bit more gifted than me? And to you, I would say what he said to Paul. My power is perfected in weakness. You see, our lack of strength, our guilt, our inability, none of these things are hindrances to the Lord who says, I will forgive your sins. I will perfect my strength in your life and I will be with you in this process. Remember again, it is not us who is accomplishing this. The Lord is the sent one, the called one, the true minister. We are merely his witnesses, merely those called to proclaim what he has done for us. Amen.